You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I'm Josh Barker, and joining me is State Representative Andrew Fink, who represents Hillsdale and Branch Counties. Congratulations for winning re-election last week, Representative Fink. After last week's election, he will continue to serve in the State House for another two years, now representing, after redistricting, the number has changed to State House District 35. While Representative Fink won, some of his colleagues in the state legislature didn't. Last week was a pretty big blow for Michigan Republicans. Governor Gretchen Whitmer, the Democrat, won re-election with 54% of the vote. In the state House and Senate, both flipped blue with a narrow two-seat majority in both houses, 56 to 54 in the House, 20 to 18 in the state Senate. In addition, all three ballot proposals, which we've discussed in previous weeks, they also passed, including the right to abortion and some of those changes to election and voting procedures. Representative Fink, a very broad question, what are your general reactions to last week's results? What was going through your head as you saw the results coming in? Our party is not in shape to win competitive elections right now. And I think that while there's already been lots of finger pointing and finding scapegoats to blame. In my opinion, if every Republican who is regretting the outcomes doesn't include himself or herself in the calculation, then he's, you know, you're probably missing something because regardless of what you think the original, what kept us from getting out of the starting blocks fast enough, the the fact is that after the primary, we did not come together and coalesce very quickly, delayed, uh, especially statewide, getting the message out, even if we had had a competitive funding operation. I mean, the the statewide candidates were outspent vastly. That does usually have dramatic down-ticket effects, uh, although legislators are all often able to, and, and in most cases, in fact, maybe every case this time, all the Republicans outran the top of the ticket. When the gap gets to be 10 points or, or more, it becomes extremely difficult, even for really effective legislators like my friend Jack O'Malley up in Traverse City, to overcome uh, a gap that large at the top of the ticket. You're just asking people to do a lot of ticket splitting. There's also the phenomenon of ballot fatigue, and there are more third-party candidates usually towards the top of the ticket than towards the bottom. In my own race, for instance, there were no third parties. It was just R against D. And so that sort of simplifies things. And as maybe partially as a result, I have a higher percentage than Tudor Dixon did, even though she's, uh, you know, she was a bigger bigger star of the election this time being the, the gubernatorial candidate. So there are some technical things to sort of dwell on and some tactical questions that need to be asked. But in terms of strategy, I just don't think that the Republicans across the state came together the way they need to if they want to beat the Democrats. And getting out of primary mode immediately is so important and was forgotten, I think, this time. So now there's been some questions about exactly what this will mean for the state government moving forward as far as policy goes. I mean, abortion is was a huge thing that we were talking about, and certainly with Prop 3 passing, and we can expect at, at a minimum more of the same non-enforcement of the laws that have been on the books, and that those would certainly be ruled unconstitutional by a state court under the new constitutional amendment there. But other than abortion, what do you see as the big questions and policy areas that the state house and Senate will be taking up now that the Democrats are in control. Do you, do you have a sense or gauge on what exactly that will look like? Conventional wisdom, Josh, and it's, you know, conventional, so it could certainly could be wrong, but the conventional wisdom is that the state's right to work law will be a top target, perhaps the top target of the newly democratic legislature next year. And, you know, my fear is that going backwards on economic policy like that will allow Michigan to, to continue to fall behind uh, states that you know have already been enjoying the benefits of that kind of policy over the last few years. 
So, you know, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that we can make the case for keeping in place some of the things that our state benefited from in the teens. I mean, in the last couple of years, obviously people will blame COVID, but not every state after COVID uh, or during COVID or whatever lost population. Michigan did. In the 2000s, Michigan's economy was the second worst in the country, second only to Louisiana, which suffered Hurricane Katrina, you know, a unique wipeout. Right. And uh, so, you know, going back to policies that will make us look more like that than we did during the teens when our economy was actually growing and our population was finally growing again after, you know, many, many years of stagnation. And now we're back to shrinking, and yet we want to continue to look to policies that made Michigan, you know, sort of, in a sense, one of the rustiest of the Rust Belt states. Um, and there's, you know, there's nothing wrong with with having been the economic driver of the 1950s, 40s, and 50s the way we were, uh, even through maybe the 70s. But you know, around 1980, our state started to fall behind, and so I'm, I'm I will be very disappointed if that's the direction that uh, the new leadership in the legislature wants to go. You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. I'm Josh Barker, and we have Representative Andrew Fink with us. So tell us a little bit more about Right to Work. I think a lot of people know it is something to do with unions, but could you lay out for, for our listeners exactly what our current law on the books with that entails and kind of why Michigan Democrats are not in favor of that? I mean, it sounds the, the, uh, how it's been marketed, Right to Work. Uh, you know, who, wouldn't, who wouldn't be for a Right to Work? FDR was for a, a right to have a job. Uh, what, what, what's the argument against it, and, and what's your take on that? You think of the Commonwealth Club address there? The, what did <laughs> yeah, you say? The, the, every man has a right to life, and so he has a right to meaningful work. Well, yeah. you know, FDR saw that as, as sort of saying that there should be some kind of guarantee of a job, but, but the, what I would say is that, you know, your right to, to life and liberty uh, should mean that you're able to benefit from the fruit of your own labor. And what our right to work law does is it is it prevents um, a collective bargaining agreement agreement from I mean this is the level at which I can describe it now I, I haven't like read the text in some time because it's been on the books now for for quite a while and it has not been a something that's been debated recently but prevents a collective bargaining agreement from requiring uh, employees to belong to the union um, and there are some um, there are some sort of uh, uh, ins and outs to that. Like, I, if I remember correctly, there are still some required fees that can be charged if the union essentially administers portions of, of an employer's, um, you know, employee-employer employee-employer relationship on the employer's behalf, uh, which you can imagine at larger, you know, larger employers, they're, they're mm-hmm. you know, whatever, there might be an HR function or something that the union serves. But, but essentially, you can't be required to belong to a union in order to have the job. And the reason for that is that, you know, unions take all kinds of action that go uh, – well, there are multiple reasons for it. But one important reason is that unions take all kinds of actions, including political ones, that go beyond simply negotiating, you know, the wages and benefits of the employees. And uh, whether the, you know, the wages and benefits of, of the employees are more efficiently negotiated by a union, you know, people have had different experiences there. But among other reasons – your union dues wind up funding political action that many union members won't agree with. 
And so freeing up the members of a workforce from being associated with a particular union's political positions has a, uh, an important free speech benefit to it. And in addition to that, you know, just the the decision that a person might make to, to desire independence over the collective bargaining advantage, you know, the idea of a, of a, of a collective bargaining agreement is that the workers are stronger when they are grouped together as a negotiating piece because any one person maybe is easy to replace but not all or half of the employees or whatever. But if a person makes a different judgment about that, the collective bargaining, you know, the, the labor laws we have don't need, doesn't need to protect the union itself if it's not actually a persuasive entity, you know, if it, if it doesn't actually provide the benefits to the individual members sufficient to make them want to join it. So that's, that's kind of the stakes there. And the states that are growing, I'm sure I've, I've mentioned these things in, in the past, Josh, but the southern states with low income taxes also tend to have right-to-work laws in place, and many of them have for a really long time. And it's kind of the traditional industrial powerhouse states up in the upper Midwest and the Great Lakes region that have tended to favor union organization over non-unionized workers. So returning to that bias, I just I, again, I think that that's looking at things that have been tried and, in my opinion, did not ever make sense as a matter of principle, but were also harming us as just as a matter of fact. It was almost easy to demonstrate. So that's, that is a, that's a major concern. Absolutely. And something else to note as far as other states in our general Midwest region, Illinois had right-to-work opposition on the ballot constitutional amendment that would basically repeal that state's right-to-work law, and it, it also passed last Tuesday. So certainly that's been a trend among Democrats in the Midwest, and it'll be Interesting to see if Michigan Democrats follow through on that. Well, so we've talked about some of their priorities there. How does being in the House minority now change your own personal priorities being in the legislature, perhaps your goals and what what you're trying to work on? How will you approach this next season differently than you did your first term? Yeah, it's a good question. And in a sense, I tried to be modest when answering questions about how I was going to do things uh, before I got there because I had never done it before. And then with this unexpected and disappointing twist, it's new territory again. So working the minority will be interesting. I mean, because there are uh, there are some things that I was already intending to work with members of the Democratic caucus on. Not most of my favorite ideas, but some of them, including uh, housing policy that I think would, would accommodate more construction of uh, market rate housing rather than focusing exclusively as has so often happened over the years, uh, chasing the kind of vague idea of affordable housing. My attitude is let's let's try to focus on abundant housing, and I, and there is some support for that on the other side of the aisle. So there are still some projects that I have in mind that uh, that are you know potentially live issues. But at the same time, the tone that's set by the new speaker and and the rest of the Democrat leadership will really determine whether working with them is is uh, possible as a member of the of the. Minority Caucus. They haven't been in power in over a decade in the House and in over three decades in the Senate. And so forming new habits, you know, left and right here. And so we don't know exactly how they're intending to handle things and how, how workable they're going to be. In addition to that, I think that our governor is going to be focusing a lot of her energy on uh, national politics in the, ne- in the next year or two. And that's going to make uh, what was already a difficult and times frustrating, verging on pointless relationship between her and the legislature. It's going to make it even uh, probably more challenging from my perspective. So here goes nothing, Josh. I'm not going to stop fighting for the principles that I ran on, the principles that I think are community support, uh, how much activity there's going to be that allows those principles to be advanced. That's an open question at this point, but 
I will be prodding. I'll be looking like a think of a running back who's kind of checking the gaps between the linemen. That's kind of the position we're in now is uh, where we where we see some daylight where we can go and, and achieve some things for our people. You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. Josh Barker with Representative Andrew Fink. Now, we've talked a few times about how some of these bills that Republicans have passed, such as limiting executive power or whatnot, certainly some of the election reforms as well, got some bipartisan support. Granted, Republicans were in the majority in those cases, but you had several Democrats cross over from across the caucus lines on some of that. Do you think that some of that might end now that they're in the majority? And do you think there will be less bipartisanship in in that sense? Yeah, that's the question. Uh, That is the question is what, you know, do you want to continue? You know, the governor took credit for 800 bipartisan bills being signed in her in her first term uh, when she was campaigning. Well, every bill she signed was bipartisan or else it couldn't have passed. Right. So uh, that was just the, that's the situation she was in. It's not as though she achieved something there. Well, now they have a choice. Uh, will they be focusing on it's interesting in Lansing? If you talk to, um, you know, a lobbyist or an interest group, you know, whether it's uh, a business group or or a. Uh, an issue advocacy group, you know, advocating for whatever you want, charter schools or whatever. Sometimes the mantra is uh, is all I need is 56, 20, and one. That's 56 representatives, 20 votes in the Senate, which the 20th vote sometimes comes from the lieutenant governor, uh, and one signature from the governor, you know, one one assent from from the governor, and then I have legislation done. You know, I've got a, a new law. Well, they have 56, 20, and one all in one party now, and so the question is: Is that going to be their attitude? maximal uh, partisanship, uh, or is it going to be you know, governing the state in a way that uh, makes sense to a broader cross-section of the people? Um, that, that's, you know, that's part of this whole open question of what's the attitude going to be, what's the tone going to be. And, you know, at the end of the day, I don't think that a, a strictly partisan agenda is going to last very long because they got plenty of members who live in areas with large numbers of of people who are not down the line Democrats, and they're going to have to do things that appeal to the common Michiganian, or they're going to render themselves a uh, one-term majority. I mean, my plan is for them to be a one-term majority regardless, um, but if they can't ever get any kind of consensus built, it's not going to be a fun ride for them either, in my opinion. Now, finishing up, I, I want to turn our discussion towards the remaining portion of this term, often called a lame duck term because, you know, the next legislature has already been elected. So there's not really a whole lot that people have in mind. Everyone's kind of looking towards January as we're talking about that. But I mean, you're still there in the legislature. Republicans still have the majority for the next you know, month and a half. And that means that there's still opportunities to work on some things. You've got a Democrat governor. So obviously, as we've been talking about, whatever happens is going to be bipartisan. Are there any particular bills or policy issue items that you see potentially getting addressed during this lame duck period between now and the beginning of next year? Yeah, I mean, there are many bills that have been voted out of one chamber into the other, uh, which are still sitting there. And so those are the easiest to move because they've, they've been in the in the second chamber for five days which is our Constitution's requirement um, uh, on moving on, on a, a bill becoming uh, eligible to be voted on the second chamber. has got to be, have, have been in each chamber for five days. So there are some ethics bills, one of which I sponsored, which would establish a permanent ethics committee in the legislature or, or a, a pair of them, one in each uh, branch of the legislature. 
I would love to see that bill advance and its companion pieces. Some of that is kind of occupied by uh, the ancillary bits of Proposal 1 that I know we talked about a couple of weeks ago, but other pieces of it are different. Then there's a, a bill that, that is not yet in the second chamber, not even out of the first chamber, but if there is an opportunity to move it, I think it would be a good candidate, a bill that I sponsored, which would allow Michigan hospitals to designate as rural emergency hospitals, which is a new Medicaid designation. And what it would essentially do is prevent the closure of one or two hospitals around the state that are currently not just are just not making it economically. It prevent them from closing altogether and denying all medical resources there to their um, neighbors, the people who live around them, and instead allow them to offer only emergency services. And while it's it will be too bad for those folks if they can't get normal inpatient services or, or whatever else they're currently benefiting from from those hospitals. The bottom line is it's either that or closure in uh, in one or two cases around the state, including fairly near us in Sturgis. So I would like to see that legislation move uh, because I, you know, it really is critical to the happiness and success of some Michigan communities that are not very different from the one that we live in. That, as you mentioned, that House Bill 6380, and to me, it sounds like it's allowing these hospitals to basically make decisions about the best extensive and intensive margins of how they're going to operate. They say, well, you know, it doesn't make sense for us to be offering all these uh, special surgeries because we just don't have the, the demand for, for something like that to have that capacity always available. But when it comes to emergency care, you can't basically you're you're deregulating some of this where you're not requiring hospitals to offer all of these services that it just simply doesn't make sense for them to offer a full scale operation out in some of these rural areas when they can offer what's critically needed and, and most important in the emergency services. Yeah, that's that's correct, Josh. And it's not exactly the system I would have designed at the outset, but we're in the middle of it now. And so with the in order to close in order to close a hospital and or, or close portions of a hospital, you, the state has to allow for the delicensure of, of the, of in this case, the overnight beds. Um, and that's not, again, that's not a system I would prefer, but it is where we are. And so this legislation is necessary for that purpose, as well as to allow them to take advantage of uh, the way Medicaid treats these things. Um, and, yeah, your point's exactly right. We know that the market is not supporting um, this hospital. Or, or, you know, if a hospital believes that about itself, that it's not profitable under its current business model, this allows them to try something else, which, uh, again, does allow for additional services. And I, I should mention that the hospitals would still be required to have a relationship with a higher-level trauma care facility, uh, probably just a hospital in an adjacent county uh, or a nearby county, which has a greater greater ability to to you know maintain full services uh doesn't doesn't face the same kind of uh, lack of funding um so the the patients who go there for emergency care would still be able to be sort of escalated in an efficient matter manner uh but this may you know make sure that there is an emergency room you know nearby those folks that's the care when you need it the very most. All right. Well, you're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. That's just about all the time we have for now. Best of luck to you with that piece of legislation and finishing up the legislative term. Again, this has been Josh Barker with Representative Andrew Fink on Radio Free Hillsdale, 101.7 FM. Thanks, Josh.